our passage, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. This is the book of James, a servant of God, the Lord of Jesus Christ. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown, give birth, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. I added two verses because we needed the song that we sang to be a part of the sermon. So anyways, it was supposed to be 2 through 16, but that was what we call an audible, okay, that are allowed to happen. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this morning and the opportunity to gather and to worship. Uh, we thank you for this series uh, that we are entering into as we are going to center our time or, around the book of James as we gather together to worship and to celebrate and to be reminded and restoried. Uh, as your people uh, that are doing the work of your kingdom. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and meet with us here in this space and in this moment. Allow us to hear anew and afresh what it is you would have us to do for you and for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of your name. And we love you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's do a few kind of Bible study things uh, off the get uh, that are more, you know, uh, background stuff on James. We're going to start with the first one of, like, who is James? Now, uh, some fun ideas with this here is the way the name progresses. Uh, if you read in scriptures, uh, James is coming from a Latinized kind of uh, spelling, retelling of the name, but it comes from Jacob. Uh, is the original kind of, if you trace it all the way back to the Hebrew name, uh, his name would be Jacob which is a very, very common name. So there's lots of Jacobs in ancient Near East, and there's lots of Jacobs today because of the Bible, lots of Israelites, Jewish people that are named Jacob. James is, this James is one of a handful of James that are prevalent or prominent throughout the New Testament. The church's 
kind of consistent or prevailing theory or idea behind the book of James, though it is not stated anywhere in the book. You get, it is James, a servant of Jesus Christ, humble servant. That, that's kind of it to the 12 churches in the diaspora, or to the 12 tribes spread out. So that, that's all. There's, there's no context of who it is. The church is genuinely and believed in the kind of traditional opinion is that it is the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. Uh, there's been debate and uh, theories around that, and whether or not uh, you know, like you can prove it is always questionable in these moments, but that is what the church has traditionally kind of held to and seems to be most probable, and it is unlikely that there is enough evidence to, like, to, to counter that. There's enough kind of early indications that the early church that was really close to it, that would have quite possibly known James himself, that agree that they think this is the brother of Jesus. Um, if you want more questions on that and authorship and how that works and what we believe about that here at Mosaic, come to the Blueprint class or ask me and Kyle. We'll grab coffee and we can talk about these things, okay? So we're going to go with, for our series and for uh, our time together, that this is the brother of Jesus. The other thing about James that is important to know is that if it is the brother of Jesus, uh, you can read this in Acts uh, you can also get this in Galatians. What we know about James is that he was the half-brother of Jesus, and we know that Jesus' family, outside of his mom, did not actually believe him to be the Messiah at the time of his death. It is there at the cross that Jesus gives his mom over to John, the disciple, the beloved one that runs faster than Peter. And it's there that he says, take care of her guide her, steward her, be with her as she uh, has to go through this grief and this trauma of my death. So we can imply that the brothers, sisters weren't there. There's some other spots in scripture that we get this and we see these different things. Galatians, there's this moment where we are told that James, the brother of Jesus, doesn't come to believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. Then he kind of jumps all in and you know, you can go with cynicism here, you can go with pure faith, whatever, it's probably a little bit of mix of both, but he goes, that dude just raised from the dead, that's my brother, I should have, you know, some skin in this game. So he does, he hops in uh, full stop, like he's all in, and he becomes the primary leader of the Christian movement of Judaism inside of Jerusalem. That is following Jesus. Because now remember, when Jesus dies, is buried, and is resurrected, I said it that way very specifically because for the first 70, or first 40 years of this group of people trying to follow and shape and form their lives after Jesus, they would have very much so still considered themselves Jews. They would have still considered themselves followers of Yahweh and the Torah and the Old Testament was still their only text the only scriptures they had and James was no different than this James is very Jewish and he sees his calling and he sees this thing that he's supposed to do in leadership and teaching and preaching as a very Jewish thing which is why he looks at it and he says this is to the 12 tribes in the diaspora this diaspora is another way you might want to say it but it, th this means the people that are spread out no longer isolated located it's to the church at large the people the t tribes at large he sees the followers of Jesus as an extenuation or continuation of this. And so he's leading this group of people in Jerusalem, serving, leading, teaching, praying. And a lot of the other disciples, they go on this missional journey out. And we don't talk a lot about the fact that there was a group that stays in Jerusalem and kind of continues their life, living, doing the things that they were doing, 
the New Testament focuses a whole lot on those people that go and kind of move around and these new Gentiles and all of this. And, but there was this group that was very Jewish and that knew the Torah and knew the laws and that were still going to the temple and were still worshiping with one another, observing the festivals, that still followed Jesus very closely. And we get these stories throughout the New Testament. So this is who the author of the book of James would have been. Brother of Jesus, leader of the Christian sect of Judaism inside of Jerusalem, what will become the Christian church as it spreads out completely from Jerusalem and Temple Falls and there's history there of why that number is 40 years before they kind of switch to calling themselves Christians and not just Jews that follow Jesus. So that's where we're at. So this book then that you have uh, in your Bibles or on your phones, however you read the text, is a letter, but it's a letter unlike anything else in the New Testament. It's very different. And it's different because it's not this like tight sermon. It's not this like uh, really like, I don't want to say thought out argument because it is a thought out book with structure and, and you can trace some things through it. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament and wisdom literature, the book of James is going to read a lot more like that. In fact, there are some scholars and different people out there that would, uh, they'll jokingly or not jokingly call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's more of this like kind of wisdom literature, this kind of saying, this practical advice of what it means to follow Jesus and, and what it means to kind of pursue after this life of this guy that came and lived and said all these things. And the other thing that it does, and this is where you can get into the theories of authorship and all this debate that the academy likes to do, and that's the, they'll be like, well, maybe there really wasn't even a James because everything that's said here is like said in other places. Yeah, okay. Doesn't really discredit the book. It's Jesus' teachings. He's, he's repeating Jesus' teachings over and over again. And so if you imagine or, or go back to thinking about like what the book of Proverbs was like, Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, these wisdom literature, a lot of the Psalms, the way they kind of like will just state things. And it's kind of just like this, it's, I don't want to call it sage advice because that mixes it into different things, but it's this way of living and existing and doing life, being human and following and pursuing Yahweh, following God. It's this structure, but it's taking the teachings of Jesus and sort of doing that with it. So everything kind of gets traced back. And it's really easy. As you go through James, you can almost follow along with the Sermon on the Mount, like straight out of Matthew, and kind of go, oh, these three things are this little teaching, this parable of Jesus. And he's giving these verses that we will go through uh, throughout our time over the next, uh, it'll be five more weeks after this one that we're going to spend in James. And, and you'll see it, that it's kind of like this Sermon on the Mount situation uh, that James knows and understands and probably has memorized at this point because these are some of the things that they've recorded and held on to that they are now uh, you know, using as sort of the centering and guiding principles of what it means to be these Jesus followers mixed with, not in a bad way, not in this like synchronistic kind of borrowing from, but drawing from and being based out of this Jewish upbringing that they have. And so it's this kind of proverbial, I mean that in the, the Proverbs way of like we're walking along and seeing Jesus' teaching given as this like advice of like, hey, this is how you got to live. This, this will bring wisdom. This will bring the abundant life that Jesus has promised. So as we think about the book this way, 
This book finds itself in controversy uh, a lot. Uh, there's great theologians that uh, many of you probably have historically heard of and loved, and I won't uh, put them on blast right here, Martin Luther, but they, they actually like, didn't even want this book a part of the Bible. And there's, there's a lot of bad reasons for that, and, and there were a lot of practical reasons for that, and I get some of the both. Uh, some of it was anti-Semitism. Like, that's just what it was. It was like, it's very Jewish book, and some of the people didn't really love the Jewish people, and, and that's a blot on the church that we should name. doesn't mean we throw everything that the church taught in that time out, but we recognize that we have to understand some of the leanings there. Other controversies with it is we can't prove the authorship. We can't prove in a definitive scientific way, like we can prove lots of things out here about gravity and space and time, you know, that we want. And it's like, well, you know, was it James? Was it not James, the brother of Jesus? Who was it? But the church has allowed it. And so we continue on. And so that introduces some of it. The Jewishness introduces some of it. But also, too, this kind of practical practicality of the book, this kind of like dropping this advice, it can feel very legalistic to people. And if you grew up in a more conservative, fundamentalist uh, type of Christianity, James is one of those books that uh, it can get used uh, inappropriately, I should say. Eugene Peterson has this great thing about seminarians, uh, people that go to seminary, uh, that he says that they're a lot of times given uh, very blunt instruments or, or surgical instruments and they use like sledgehammers and uh, hatchets instead and what he's saying by that is much of what we're dealing with with scripture and things like this is that it's meant to be used in a very specific and precise kind of way and people oftentimes get a few good ideas and then they use it to just come in and be like see this is what James says and like hit you over the head with it it's like no no, no it's not it's like that's not what it's trying to do here you have to use the tools the way they're meant to be used. Like things are designed a certain way. They have a certain intention. And James gets used inappropriate a lot of times. It gets used for fundamentalism. It, it can become very legalistic. And it can feel legalistic at times. As you're reading it, you're kind of like, oof, man, that's heavy-handed. Yeah, good. It's supposed to be. And it's okay to be heavy-handed every once in a while, you know? And so this is what James is doing. And it, there's controversy to it because people are like, man, that's, you know, what about the gospel? What about freedom? Now, I'm going to say one other thing about controversy with this, and then we're going to jump into chapter one and talk more about what our passage this morning and a little bit about the book itself and the content. In that controversy, in that idea that it can be used as legalism, it's more practical advice, yada, yada, yada. What we have done in some of this is that we have decided that theology is supposed to look a very specific way, that, that theology is supposed to uh, be a very specific thing. And that, you know, it's supposed to be very grandiose, and it's supposed to be very uh, highfalutin, maybe you could say. And it's supposed to be uh, very heady and, and tight arguments, and, and it would stand up in a rhetorical debate, you know. And there's this way in which what we're doing is we're saying the way Paul did theology in the New Testament is like the right way to, to, to do theology. And then the reformers and some people along the way, and many people in the church have kind of carried that stream along. And what we begin to do is we begin to read uh, like James and Paul as almost like counterpoints or in juxtaposition to one another. Like, see, Paul says this here about faith and about salvation and soteriology and theology and who God is and all of this. And it's like, but then James says this. And so you kind of got to hold it in balance. But James is only one book. So just give James like this much, you know, understanding and faith. Uh, only use James a little bit. You know, it's a little bit true. But we're going to kind of sit in Paul. 
when we taught on the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about this, that, that, that there becomes a problem when you use Paul to like read back to Jesus. When, when Paul becomes your filter to read all of the New Testament through the, these Pauline letters, that what happens is you begin to look at theology a very specific kind of way. And what is helpful is not to hold them in juxtaposition to each other, but to hold them in, like, in concert with one another, to allow them to, like, to, to read each other and to give uh, James the benefit of the doubt that the heavy theological weight that you would see in a book like Romans is not juxtaposed to or contradicting the book of James, but is actually undergirding and supporting a book like James. Or vice versa, right? Like that there's this way that it works out. Because James is probably written a little bit earlier in the time of the New Testament. It's based off of when he gets martyred. We believe this probably happened earlier, closer to. And so, and so like they're trying to figure this thing out. Like they're trying to go like, how do we do this? How do we live? How do we exist? There's got to be some ways in which like we follow Jesus that my day has changed. That we wake up in the morning and we do it. And, and we like put one foot in front of the other and we follow Jesus. And he's going, yeah, there are. There's some practical ways. That's not ignoring the soteriology and the theology and, the, and what the cross means that Romans and things like Hebrews are going to give you that are beautiful and eloquent and like that I would spend all day just like thinking about, right? There's some practical stuff that has to be lived out, that has to be uh, pursued. And so it's not that James lacks theology at all. In fact, I think the theology of James is profound. The, the Christology, if you will, how we see Christ and the cross, it's profound. Because what he's saying is that your life has to change because all of that other stuff is actually true. Now, this happens in all sorts of ways. Uh, we live lives uh, that we ascend to these mental beliefs and understandings, these cognitive kind of like ideas that we're really good at espousing. Uh, there's things that we're really good at repeating and like kind of retelling again and again in our own lives. And yet the reality of it is I think a lot of us don't like James's because it cuts. And it, what's easier to do when something cuts and when something holds a mirror to you or, or something disagrees with you and it disagrees with you not because it's wrong but because it asks something of you, what is easier to do is to look at that and go, well, like we can kind of just explain it all away and I don't really have to deal with that. And so whether you're an academic or you're not, I think the, the temptation with a book like James, the temptation with something like the Sermon on the Mount that James is heavily basing his teaching off of is to go, well, I mean, that's a little legalistic, don't you think, Jonathan? It's a little heavy-handed. I mean, it's the 21st century. Like, we don't ask things of people. We just kind of encourage and support and tell each other that we're all doing a really good job. But James is going to say, no. In the early church that decided what was going to be canonized and put in our Bibles to carry on for decade after decade after decade, says, no. Your life is actually supposed to change as a result of that theology. Like, this is theology and live fire. And when we get really practical, I, I have this temptation. I hear a sermon that's, like, really practical. And I'm kind of like, well, there wasn't really any theology in it, was it? I mean, you should have met the version of me that was in seminary 13 years ago. I was, like, really, really quick to say things like that. Like, well, well it's not a lot. This guy obviously didn't get his master's or his doctorate. Like, I guess we can listen to it a little bit. But don't give it too much weight. Because when somebody looks at you and says your life is actually supposed to change and there's actually something about you that is supposed to be different as a result of what you believe in and think about, that how you treat your family and how you talk and how you tell stories 
and what details you do and don't include because of your pride and your ego. It's supposed to change. The theology has an impact. Your life should look different day in and day out, not just at a macro level, but on micro levels, very minuscule ways. Your life should drastically be shifted upside down, and that's what James is trying to do. And so you get this kind of sense that his practicalness, his practicality, lacks some sort of like profundity, but it doesn't. It's in it. It's undergirding it. It's guiding it. And so you read it in concert with. And I would say that it would be helpful for us while we're here. This is one of my soapboxes I like to get on. But we should read the New Testament through the lens of Jesus. And yes, our four Gospels are different. And, and we have different sayings and different understandings. And we can get all into that at some other point in time. But don't read it through Paul. Read it through Jesus. Understand what Jesus was saying and understand how Paul is taking that and expanding upon it and, and running with it in good ways that have shaped and formed us, which is profound. But it's the Sermon on the Mount because you got someone like James who would have understood and known the Shema. That Jesus and the other Jewish people would have said again and again and, and they would have had this like rootedness, this thing where they're all coming from, this centered way of understanding what the scriptures are. Did you get, we did Deuteronomy over the summer. You guys can put it on the screen. Deuteronomy four, 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. James would have known this. Jesus would have known this. And so there's this kind of shared essence of understanding and knowing who God is that undergirds and kind of motivates and, and propels all that they're going to say about who God is. There's this way of shaping and understanding and knowing that they're supposed to actually do something with this. And Jesus comes along, and he's going to add to this, right? He's going to say, this is good. This, this is great. Hear, O Israel, Lord, and know this. And, we, and many of us in this room, we, we, we know these things. Scott McKnight's going to call what Jesus says, the Jesus Creed. Jump to Matthew. Matthew 22. Jesus replied, so he's asked, summarize the law for me. Tell, tell me what it is. Like, root it down. There's this debate. We talked about this when we did Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The first and greatest commandment. Notice uh, Jesus adds a little something. We won't get into all that, but it's good. And then the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of it. Everything we're doing hangs on these two commands. And James is going to take that and pick it up and run with it. He's going to say, your theology is good. What you believe, what you know, what you understand, it matters. And you have to know who God is. You have to understand his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, which we see right away in chapter 1. Listen, God is a gracious God. If you ask him for things and you believe in him, he will be good to deliver it to you. He understands that you're not going to want to live the way you live if you do not have a right understanding of who God is. But our right understanding of God is not predicated on solely just these different like academic debates and ideas and these big theological terms that we can throw out left and right. At the end of the day, what it matters and what you need to know is that the Lord your God is one. And he loves you. And he provides for you. And he is a generous and gracious God. And he is not holding out on you. 
And he wants to offer you abundance, and he wants to offer you life, and he wants to offer you the kingdom, and he wants you to participate in it and be a part of it and to do this thing where you experience the abundance and the joy and the hope that you are meant to experience as his creation. And if you understand that about God, you will not, in James and in Jesus' mind, be able to do anything but love your neighbor as yourself, because that's what it's all pointing to. It's to live in this kind of way. And when you grasp a hold of who God is, and you grasp the promise that he's generous, and that he's faithful, and that he loves you, and that his grace and his mercy extends to a thousand generations, when you get that, it should change you. It should make you different. It should make you think about life and how you function and operate and live differently. And so this is what chapter one does. It, it introduces this idea it's chapter one. It's an intro. That's why I said there is, there is an argument to this here still. Even though it's kind of like a Proverbs, there's still structure to it. He's a smart dude, even if he was kind of blue collar. He's got some thoughts and things that he wants to say. And so he's telling it to us. And he says, listen, you have to see this. You have to know that God is good, that he's gracious, and that he's kind. And you should experience joy. And the first thing he's going to kind of thematically address is this idea that these people are being persecuted and running for their lives. People are about to start dying real soon because of their confession of who Jesus is and their belief of who God is. And their theology is going to matter, is going to ask something of them. And he's going to say, this isn't going to be easy. Also, too, just more practically, as he gets into practical things, it is going to be difficult to not slander. It is going to be difficult to hold your tongue. It is going to be difficult to not respond immediately and to send that email or that text message just because you're angry or you are offended. It is going to be difficult to take a step back and realize that everybody doesn't hate you and it's not all about you and that life doesn't revolve around you. And that just because somebody did something doesn't mean that you're, you know, less than or whatever it is. You have to be slow to respond. It's going to be hard to be slow. It was hard 2,000 years ago. And now we can be even faster with Twitter fingers. You know what I'm saying? Like when information and data and news and people's response and my expectations and connections are instantaneous with you. And if you don't respond, I was listening to a leadership podcast and this guy was laughing. He's talking with his dad. And he said, he's like, how did you do business before phones? And he's like, actually really, really well. Because when I left the office at 4 p.m. on a Friday, I went home and for the whole weekend, nobody could contact me. And I thought about things and I processed things. And I was, there were no expectations put on me. And he's like, now I don't send an email within four hours. And somebody's like, where have you been? Why are you not responding to me? Like the, we expect this thing. It's going to be difficult to be slow. It's going to be difficult to wait. You're going to have to have things like patience, kindness. You're going to have to love your enemy. You're going to have to assume the best about people. You're going to have to assume that like, they weren't just out to get you, but that maybe they had a bad day. That that person that cut you off, maybe there's an emergency or they're trying to get somewhere because they're late. And that wasn't just because they thought that you were less than them. There's all sorts of ways that we pull this into our lives and we start to get really angry and it's going to be hard to live a life this way that is in accordance with this kind of gospel and this kind of God. And this is what James wants us to see. And so in chapter one, what he does is he kind of highlights some of the themes that you're going to see throughout the rest of James. And I'll say there's kind of five of them. Uh, you could, you know, these lists, you know, whatever. So my five that I'm going to give you, there's more, there's less, there's, you know, whatever. So trials. 
that lead to perfection is a major idea. Wisdom that leads you to ask for faith or that is rooted in faith. This faith of who God is will provide a wisdom. We see this in chapter 1. James is going to talk a lot about poverty and wealth and riches. Um, so just be prepared to be convicted. If you're not convicted, I don't know if you're reading James correctly in the 21st century West. This, you can't read James and not feel a little bit of like, oh, dang it, that sucks. That's the point. Okay, so riches and poverty that will lead to a genuine faith. And then I would say that it, it is God's generosity is a primary theme that you're going to see over and over again. So to break it down less than five and to think of it in two ways, what you see in chapter one and what you're going to see in the next four chapters of James after this is that James is going to talk a whole lot about how good God is in the ethics and morals and the way you should live as a result of God's goodness and generosity and grace and mercy and love and kindness, okay? It's pretty simple. This is going to do that just again and again. God is good. Everything we know about Jesus through Romans and Hebrews and all the rest of the scriptures, that is going to move us into saying there is a certain way in which we are called to live and function and operate in this world as a result of who he is and our understanding and our acceptance of that grace and mercy that he is freely offering to us. And when we do that, what James wants us to understand is that there is a wholeness and a holiness that results from it. I love, uh, I don't know where I heard this term, but I can remember it was in seminary in a preaching class, and this idea that we are called to be holy other. And you can spell it both ways, right? Like completely and totally different and other, and also holy in this righteous, set apart, and called kind of way as followers of Jesus. James is going to do this with us. He is saying, as a result of this, this ethic, this morality, what it is going to do, it is going to bring to you a wholeness and a holiness. When you reduce James down to legalism and fundamentalism, what you're focusing on is a uh, kind of self-performative righteousness or holiness, one that you are conjuring up within yourself. And let's just go ahead and name it here now. None of us are free of that. We can all throw the stones and say, well, that person's self-righteous. That person, okay, we're all humans. And the point is, is that none of us are so sophisticated that we are beyond that. None of us have reached some height of a sort of, you know, whatever we might call it, evolution or enlightenment, that we no longer are self-righteous and performative in the way we do things. Scripture is going to say again and again, you are the problem, but you are loved and you're really, really good. You are loved and you are far better, as Tim Keller would say, than you could ever imagine or think of. Like you are a better creation and human being than any of you give yourself credit for when you lay down at night and think about all the crappy things you did all day long. Because we all know the most arrogant people, myself included, the people that are most focused on themselves and they think about all of the great things they do and they overemphasize and, and double down on their strengths and their giftings and their powers, that really all they're doing is they're hiding from this terrible truth that they know about themselves, which is that they're broken and they're flawed and they're failures. But not failures in the way that we humanity like to think of failures, right? This, it's like we overemphasize that. And so what we know is that you are loved, you're cared for, you're beautifully made in the image of God, and you carry that with you everywhere. And Jesus deeply and profoundly loves you, and he did the things that he did for you because he loves you and he cares for you, not what you do. The most profound thing that has ever happened to me is to be loved by a woman that, for 13 years that loves me for me. 
It's changed my life. To have someone to just like to, to begin to reckon with. If you've never had the gift of understanding that someone loves you for you, I screw up a lot. I make things really difficult on the people around me on a regular basis. Day in and day out, most of the time I'm a tension bomb. And I make things harder. And to have someone to look you in the face and to say, I still love you. I love you for you. I actually like being around you. This is what the gospel is inviting us into, is to experience this in the grace and the kindness of Jesus. That you are that way, that you are that kind of loved, but it doesn't diminish or wash over the fact that you are also broken and flawed, and you are in deep need of a Savior, but that Savior loves you, regardless of your need for Him. In fact, He loves you more because of it, because it's a part of who you are, and He looks at you the same way you watch a movie or a TV show, and you look at it, and you go, oh my gosh, I love that character, and they just keep screwing up, and I desperately want them to win. I want them to succeed. That's the way we should look at one another. And that's going to be really, really hard because me wanting you to succeed is going to get in the way of what I want for me and my success. And James knows this, and so James is going to give us a litany of things to say, this is how you have to live your life. Because you are desperately in need of a Savior, and none of you are exempt from it. And all of you are going to attempt to live in this righteous way, and in an attempt to live righteously, what is going to happen is you are going to understand how fragmented and broken you are. And if you can accept that and acknowledge that, you will find wholeness and healing and restoration in your life and in your relationships. And as a result, the righteousness that you are pursuing will be added on to the top. This is what God wants to do with you in your life. And this is what James wants you to walk away with. And so he says, there's this fragmentation, this brokenness. And if you will live by the moral and the ethic of the kingdom, it will not magically go away. Unfortunately, he's going to talk about how long you're going to have to wait. And he's going to lead from the get with this idea that it is going to happen in ways that you don't want it to. There is no magic pill. There is no magic button. It is patience. It is perseverance. It is a stead fast belief that God is who he says he is and that he is not holding out on you, that he loves you and that he is a generous and good God because you will regularly encounter moments in your life that will cause you to go, he has to be holding out on me. It is time that I take things into my own hands, into my own action and make for myself what I think is good and right. But you can't. You must wait. You must hold on in faith. And you must live this life because life is really, really hard. And the Christian life is no different. And the faster and the sooner that we can accept that life is hard and that it is difficult, the faster and sooner we can get on about our lives living the way that we should live. Uh, Richard Rohr has five things that he says that is in a book about boys. I've quoted this before, but I wanted to put it on the screen so you could see it. Just go ahead and throw all five on there. I won't read them one by one. I was going to do that, but we're going to go faster. Okay, so this is, he says this is for boys specifically in his book, that every little boy by the time they go to like middle school should know these five things. That life is hard, you're not that important, your life is not about you, you're not in control, and one day you're going to die. Says every, and then he goes on to say, every human should know this. This is what James knows deep in his bones. He gets this. Being a good, devout Jew, you would have understood this really, really well. And you would get that you need deeply a way of living and existing that is outside of you because you can't get out of this cycle on your own. This is the reality of life. James knows this. This should not discourage you if you are going, man, that kind of sucks. 
okay, you're, you're, at the good, you're at the first starting point. Now stick with the rest of the book of James and walk through this and realize that this is actually really good news. Because it shouldn't be about us. And it doesn't need to be about us. And people are thinking about us way less than we think they are. And they care way less about us than we think they do. And they care more about us than we think they do simultaneously, which is, you know, catch 22. But that's because this is the way we operate. You just, just flip these five things and go, that's the way I live most of my life, right? I mostly think life should be easy and that things should just happen for me because, I mean, every book I've ever read, I'm, I'm the main character. So, like, obviously it should be, like, it should just happen. It's supposed to just... Everyone should care about what I have to say. I'm so important. Do they not know that, like, I've studied and I've done my research? Do they not know how smart I am? Like, everything, when I say something, people should just be like, oh, she's so smart. And that's actually how I want to leave most conversations, if I'm being really honest with you. You know, that's my desire. When I leave a conversation, I want people to walk away thinking, like, gosh, that guy, he's so important. I'm so glad I got to spend time with him. I assume that most of the things are about me. I'm the baby of the family, so that one's, we'll just leave that one there. And I desperately am trying to control everything all the time. And you all are too. Don't lie to yourselves. I think I'm okay with the dying one. That one we'll move on from, okay? So I've accepted that. That's a reality of my life. I've enjoyed getting older. I'm fine with aging. So we live our lives this way. We do it again and again. We function like this. And it robs us of the joy of the gospel. It robs us of getting to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. Because we're trying to avoid the trials and difficulties and what the gospel is telling us and what James is trying to tell us is that if you're going to shape your life after Christ, that means you're going to have to sacrifice and submit and die. And you're going to have to acknowledge that it's not about you. And that there's a more important thing that's happening here and it's bringing glory to God the Father and seeing the kingdom happen among you and living in this different kind of way. And so this becomes the ethic of the kingdom and the life that we're meant to live. And so I'm, in sake of going way too long, what I want to say is this, is that as you think about this, this is why this drastically changes how we handle conversations around hot button issues in our lives with both believers and non-believers, and we begin to think about how we should function and operate, is that Jesus is not saying, like, this is the only way, this is the smartest way, this is the way you have to live because you're perfect and you're important and you're better than everybody else and you're trying to get out of the difficulties of life. No, what he's saying is if you want to live the way that I'm calling you to, if you want to be a Jesus follower, there's a certain ethic in a way that you're going to have to live and function and operate. And most of those things are going to require you to deny the things that you find most important and dear to you. And you're going to spend most of your life trying to find ways to justify them and to defend them and to weave them into the life that you think that Christ should have for you, when what he is asking of you is to live the way he has called you to live. So there are times when you are going to have to agree to things or do things or live in a way that goes against what you think is probably, you know, the most fun way to live. And there are going to be times where you don't understand fully, you have some vague ideas and some understandings of why you should say no to that thing or why you should live differently than that or why you should give that up or why you should acknowledge that maybe the one that created us has some sort of idea or inkling of what it means to live and function as the created and that we should submit ourselves to it. And so this is what James wants us to do. And so the ethic of the kingdom is not meant to be held out over a group of people and to say, well, you're all terrible people and you're all unintelligent and you have no reason and you just don't, aren't, you aren't smart, yada, yada, yada. No. Most of the people are very smart. It's good wisdom. It's practical advice. 
makes sense that things should go that way, function that way. It makes sense that people should legally be allowed to do lots of those things. But if you're going to want to live the way that the kingdom calls you to, there's a different ethic and moral code that you're called to live to. It doesn't make you better than anybody else because you're not that important. It doesn't make you superior to anyone else because you're just going to die anyways. What you're called to do is to live and function in a way that allows you to operate in line with what Jesus would have for you in the kingdom. And this is what the whole point of being a Christian is, is that we would function like this. And this is what James is going to try to do for us. He's going to say, be slow to anger. Slow down. Don't respond so quickly. Think about it. Have some wisdom. Use some judgment. Because you're going to be okay. Because you, as a follower of Jesus, are called to respond differently. If you keep reading in chapter 1, that's the next thing he goes to, is being slow to anger, slow to respond. In our culture today, where you are not just like encouraged, you are expected as an organization and as a person, if you have any kind of status or clout, everybody immediately, like Kyle and the DMV, wants to know, like, well, what's your thought on this? What's your opinion? It is countercultural to just slow down and go, like, ah, I'm just not going to respond. There's righteous anger that we're meant to have. And no one's saying that you should never be angry as a Christian. But in our culture and in our society today, it is countercultural to not just be angry all the time. And to not just get angry every time something happens that you disagree with, even if you are right to disagree with it. You just don't need to be angry all the time. You need to be full of joy and of hope and assuming the best about the other people that are around you because Jesus assumes the best about you. And we should be assuming the best about each other instead of being offended and assuming that somebody's got negative thoughts about me or that the way I did things is just, you know, the way my brain works. We should be assuming that that person loves me and they care about me and it's amazing that they would be willing to stick themselves out there in that kind of way to like confront me on that or, or to challenge me on that because they see the value and the good in me and what we're doing. So this is what James wants us to do as the people that follow Jesus and as the bait comes back up and we celebrate communion. We come to the table and we come and we take the piece of the bread and the cup and we go back to our seats and we hold on to those elements in our hands. We continue in this moment to be reminded that this is the way of the kingdom. This is the ethic of the kingdom. And that this is who God is. This is the generous, loving, gracious God that is willing to offer everything for you. And in every moment that you find the opportunity and the chance to doubt that God is good, and in every moment that you think to yourself, he has to be holding out on me. We come Sunday after Sunday and walk down these aisles and come to the table to receive the gifts of God for the people of God because we come to recenter and to restore and to remind ourselves that he has never been holding out on us. And that he has always only wanted abundance and joy and goodness in our lives. And that the problem is, is that we decide that he's holding out on us and we decide to do things our own way. And we get the opportunity again and again to come and to receive and to be reminded that he's given us everything. And that his ways, though not always completely understandable, are higher. They're better. They're different. And there's something about how I'm supposed to live in accordance with that and in line with that. And so we come and we take in the cup that remind us of God's faithfulness and his provision that in the moments of goodness or scarcity and, and in the moments of fear that he provides, the bread, it represents the manna. It represents God's gift and his provision to the people in the desert and the wilderness 
when they were looking and searching and trying to figure out what was going on and when they were deciding that maybe the old life was better. And he said, okay, if you don't have food, I'll give you food. And they celebrated it and they rejoiced in it. And then they complained about it. And they expected it to happen in a different kind of way again and again. It's October and the temperatures drop below 60 degrees. So I listened to Manchester Orchestra and they got this great line that says, manna is a hell of a drug. And it is. Because we get a high and a hit off this. And we think, oh, yeah, 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 God, give it to me. And then we fill it and we experience it. And then we assume that he's supposed to just keep doing more. And that it's just supposed to be this feeling and this emotion and this ecstasy. And what he's offering is known as this patience. Kind of just perseverance in one direction and knowing that it is still true. That God has given something for you. And that he's providing for you and he's making a way. And so we come and we receive the bread and we receive the cup that is the blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. That we might receive and drink deeply of the sacrifice. And in so doing, what we are called to is to practice a different way of being and existing in this world that is in line with a different ethic and morality than what we are predisposed to wanting for ourselves. And so the next five weeks, we're going to go on this journey together. And a lot of us are going to be really convicted, myself included. First and foremost, I'm not going to like what James has to say for me at times. But I hope that as we do this, as we come and we receive, that we could go on this journey together and we as a community and as a church could just think for a little bit what it might be like if we as a group of people took James at his word and took Jesus at his word and begin to think about what it looks like that we live in a different kind of way to a different set of values and standards as a result of the gift and graciousness of God, as a result of being able to step into and participate in the life and the kingdom. And that in so doing, as we do that, we get to then invite others into that life with us. And that is how we see the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We ingest this, we take it into us, and then we go and we live it out and we participate. So as the band plays the next song, come, take the bread, the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to the elements, and receive the gifts of God for the